Our scripture text this morning is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 30, verses 1 through 6. Now when David and his men came to Ziglag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziglag. They had overcome Ziglag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the wife of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. All right, today is the second to the last sermon in the book of 1 Samuel. Next week we will end our study. And then in a couple weeks after that, we will begin Romans, the book of Romans. So be praying about that. But today, as we see, we, we've seen David as, as he was in a bit of a fix that he got himself into, if you remember. He decided to hide himself among the Philistines to evade capture and killing from Saul. And that worked for a little bit. But what happened is they actually drafted him and said, you're going to help us fight against your people. And you're going to help us kill your own people. And so David was now uh, right on at, the, at, the, at the, the eve, right, right at the very door of doing that, uh, when he was graciously delivered from that uh, by the Philistines. <laughs> they, they said, we don't want this guy fighting with us. He may turn against us, so send him home. So what a relief, right? David is now free and his men are free. None of them wanted to do what they were going to be commanded to do. And so now they've been set free, they've been delivered, and now they're heading back home. And you can, you can, you can just imagine as they begin their 60-mile walk home to Ziklag, eager to see their families and enjoy some much-needed rest and relaxation. The horror that they see when, when they arrive three days later. Look at verses one through four. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire. Their, their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. So, what, a, what do you do? I mean, the title, humorously, when it all goes to pot, but that's a very real statement, right? When the wheels fall off, when the bottom drops out, all those little slogans and euphemisms that we use to talk about when brokenness comes our way again and again and again and again. Usually right after a high time of our life, right? A, a, a great joyous victory, a, a celebration. And then it won't be too long until misery, pain, brokenness, heartache. 
And this is where we are right here. We're at the point where it all goes to pot. And that's what David is showing us here. We, we see his man. We see David. We see them weeping until they can weep no more. This grieving process, which is a real thing. I mean, the, 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 the pain of realizing that everything you had, everything is gone. The city is burned to the ground. Your wife, your children, everything is, is gone. And, and so therefore, this verse captures this human emotion of grief and brokenness and weeping and weeping until you can weep no more and crying out until you can cry out no more. And even it goes further in verses 5 and 6 and shows us David's personal distress in all of this, how distressful it really is, this situation that David finds himself in. Look at verses 5 and 6. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him. Because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. So David, not only has he lost the same loss that all of the people have lost under his command and under his care, but now all of the people who have lost the same thing David lost blame him and are now wanting to stone him. So you talk about one who is alone among the alone, one who is most broken among those who are broken. It's David at this moment, totally alone, lost everything, has been now made the focus of great contempt with his people. They want his head. They want his life. So what, what Psalm 30 shows us, I'm sorry, not Psalm 30, but Proverbs 30 shows us is that just when we think things can't get any worse, they can. Right? We, we think that, right? Just when things can't get any worse, First Samuel comes along and says, yes, it can. Yes, it can. We are often, I think, as Christians, we, we should. I mean, it would make sense, but you could edit that famous verse that many of us have heard, Psalm 30, verse 5, to say this, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning only to be followed by more distress in the afternoon. We could edit that. And that would be biblical to do. Yes, there's great hope there, but the truth is it gives us that microcosm of the Christian life. There is weeping and there's joy, but there's more weeping followed, followed by joy It's a cycle in this life. And I think that that we need to understand that that is plainly taught in the scriptures. The problem with us is that we've been duped by a false theology that says that suffering is abnormal for a Christian. That suffering is something strange for a Christian. And yet what we're seeing, if we read the Bible and we take it literally, we we just see what it says, we, we will see very quickly that Suffering is a part of life, not just for sinners, but for saints. And it's literally a part of God's plan for us. But just to give you a few verses, you may want to write these. I didn't put this on the notes, but jot a few things down. If you want to jot some of these down, this is not by any means exhaustive. But here's just a few verses that teach us that suffering is part of the Christian life and to be expected. Matthew 24, 9. Acts 9.16, Philippians 1.29, Luke 14.27, 1 Thessalonians 3.3, 3, 2 Timothy 1.8, 2 Timothy 4.5, 1 
1 Peter 1, verse 6. 1 Peter 4.19, 1 Peter 4.12, Romans 5.3, 2 Corinthians 4.8, 2 Corinthians 4.17, Revelation 1.9. We could go on and on. But, th- but these are just a few verses that, that talk about what Jesus talked about, especially here in John 16.33, which really is and should be the worldview of a Christian. Here it is. John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation or trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. In this verse, there's that cycle that we just have seen plainly laid out by our Savior. He's telling us there will be peace and there will be sorrow. It's, it's a cycle. He also lets us sit on something we're going to learn in this chapter that's going to be reiterated by David. He also lets us know that the peace, any peace, any genuine peace we ever experience is from Christ. Because if we go to the world... It's only going to give us trouble. The world, in the world, in the world, you will have tribulation. In me, you will have peace. Why is it that Jesus is the antidote to the trouble of the world? Because only Jesus has overcome the world. I've overcome the world. Therefore, while you're in the world, it will give you trouble, yes, but you will find your peace in me and only me. So remember that. And that must, again, as I say, this should be a, and is a worldview. The Christian life is really a worldview. How do you view the world? How do we view the, 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 the circumstances and the events of this world and, and what happens around us? We must, as believers, view it through a biblical lens, a worldview that tells us God is sovereign and he's given us a word and his word reveals to us that trouble will happen. Pain, suffering, disappointment, betrayal, it's all going to happen because in the world you will have trouble. That, folks, is a worldview that we should accept as Christians and live by. But also the glorious part of that is, but there is a peace that passes understanding in the midst of that suffering, and it's found in Christ. And that's what David's response is. This leads us to his response here in the end of verse 6. What did David do? Lost everything. Lost his wife, lost his children. And the whole country is turned now against him and wants to kill him. Verse 6 says, But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And we're going to build this up a little bit in the application at the end. But let's see what David also does in verses 7 and 8. Because what does that cause him to do when he strengthens himself in the Lord his God? Verse 7 and 8. And David said to Abathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abathar brought the ephod to David. Remember, the ephod contains the Urim and the Thummim, that tool that the priests could use to have access to God. 
That's what we see in the Old Testament. That's how God chose at that time to reveal himself. And so David seeks the Lord through the means that God has given him. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. Mm. Now we're going to talk about some of that later, but let's continue with the narrative of, of this scripture text, this chapter. Verse 9, David pursues the, the Amalekites, but he doesn't know who he's pursuing because he doesn't know who did this, right? Well, we have been given by the author the advantage as readers. We know the behind the scenes. We knew before David did what happened in this, in this narrative. And so David doesn't know who it is. It could be anybody. Roaming bands of marauders and armies, they, they constantly pillaged one another, and then they were quickly lost in, in the vast openness and crags and, and, and nooks and crannies of the desert and would hide. So he doesn't know who he's after. He doesn't know where they've gone. So David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook of Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. So out of the 600 men of David that fight with him, 200 had to stay there at the brook of Besor, and... Uh, Watch the stuff of the others as they pursued in battle. So what happens is they're now pursuing what looks like an aimless chase. I mean, who, how, how many you know, days head start have they had? Where are, we don't know who they are. We don't know which direction to begin to look. But notice verses 11 and 12. They found an Egyptian in the open country. Wow. Looks a little like just a, your everyday verse, right? This, this is significantly important. They found an Egyptian. Have you ever found an Egyptian? <laughs> They're walking along, searching for they don't know what, but they find an Egyptian in the open country. And they brought him to David. And they gave him bread, and he ate they gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. So not only did they find an Egyptian, they found a dehydrated, nearly mummified Egyptian out here in the open. But notice verses 13 and 15, what's going to happen now as a result of finding this just out of pure luck, Egyptian. They just luckily found him. Boy, that's good. So they bring this Egyptian to David after he revives. And verse 13 says, and David said to him, to whom do you belong? And where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant of an Amalekite. Hmm. And my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. Hmm. We had made a raid against the Negeb of the Cherishites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negeb of Caleb, and we burned Ziglag with fire. Hmm. 
And David said to him, will you take me down to this band? And he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master. And I will take you down to this band. I'll show you right where they are. Wow. So finding this dehydrated Egyptian was not a luxury. It was a necessity in God's plan. David would not have found them without this Egyptian. And this little account is just one more billboard for the providence of God that springs up in the book of, of 1 Samuel. It's like a billboard showing us, look at the providence of God. This was no accident that they found this Egyptian. It was all part of God's providential plan. And folks, let me tell you, folks, these little stories, these little moments that we're looking at right here, this is where your faith is built. These are not just kids' Sunday school stories. These are true records and evidence of God's working in the history of mankind to accomplish his purposes and to keep his promises to you, his covenant people. That's what, that's what this is about. Now, let's see what happens. Verse 16 through 17 and when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled away. They had sports cars. Nobody else, nobody else escaped, just these young guys that had these camels. But I mean... What a, what, a, what a total victory for David here. He, he not only, by the grace of God and through the providence of God, finds this group that kidnapped all of their people and took all of their things, but he wipes them out, justly so. And now look, verses 18 through 20. Not only did he do what God already promised. By the way, this is another example of God keeping his word. What did God say? Yes, pursue them, David, because you will catch them. You will overtake them, and you will recover. You will rescue everything. So God keeps his word. He did overtake them. He did destroy them. And now verses 18 through 20. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. Just another example of God keeping his promises in his word for us to look at and to build our faith on right there. And David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all, all. Just as God said, you will rescue all. He rescued everything. David also captured all the flocks and herds and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. Celebrating this victorious time as they head back. Now, as they come back to where those 200 men had to rest, notice what happens. Verse 21, then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Bezor and they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. So there's this reunion now, victorious reunion as David comes back celebrating. And the men that were waiting, they, they see, they sense the, the tone of the, the situation. They, they, they see the joy and they run out to welcome 
this group back. But now verse 22. We meet some worthless fellows. <laughs> Among those 400 men that David took with him to fight. Now remember this, remember this, remember this. Let's go back a moment. Do you remember where all these fellows came from that joined David way back earlier in 1 Samuel when he was hiding in the caves? It said all those in debt and all those who were, were discredited and all those who were you know, broke and battered and running from their past. That's who came and joined themselves to David. It was already a, a bunch of kind of vagabonds and, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a motley crew, if you will, right? <laughs> but look at this. Among the motley crew, they were the motliest. And that's what we're going to see here. Verse 22, then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, well, because, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. We'll give them back their wife. We'll give them back their kids. But that's all. And they're going to go away empty handed otherwise because they didn't go. They didn't go. Look at this. Look at this. Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered. Mark that. This is where, it's, this is where all that attitude is springing from. These worthless men operated out of a philosophy of works. Remember that. We deserve more than they because we did this, and they didn't. But look at how David demonstrates grace. Verse 23, but David said, you shall not do so, my brothers. <laughs> with, with, you shall not do so, my brothers. Kind response. And yet he cuts to the chase right here. You shall not do so with what the Lord has given us. You see a difference? The men said, they will not receive what we have rescued. But David says, well, you're not going to do that with what God has given us. It's God who gave us all of this. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share equally. And look at this. He made this a decree throughout the ages, King David did. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. Why did he do that? That's such an unfair rule. Unfair. That's what we like to claim very quickly as humans when we don't think something went our way unfair i mean we don't have to teach our little children how to have that mentality do we they, they grew up with it little guys little bitty kids that's not fair wow that's not fair and you're right but wow what david demonstrates here through the power of the holy spirit is the truth that we all need and should be very grateful for. I don't want God's fairness. I want his grace. I want his grace. None of us went up and went down to the battle of Calvary and paid for our sins. None of us. We all stayed back in the very comfortable, 
pleasurable spot of our sin. We didn't seek after him. We didn't care about our plight. We are rebels. We are the sinners. And yet Christ did all the work to rescue us from ourselves. Thank God for God's grace. Thank God for this, this picture that David shows us of being a man who lived and operates from a theology of grace, not a philosophy of works. And this is what the call of every believer is. We operate now from a theology of grace. This is how we deal with people. This is how we live our lives. This is the lens, again, with, with, with which we view the world from a, a philosophy that doesn't even seem fair or right to most people. It doesn't seem logical sometimes. It doesn't seem reasonable. They should get what's coming to them, so forth and so on. And yet, we are called as God's people to live and operate from a theology of grace and show kindness to our enemies. Love those who despitefully use you, Christ said. Pray for your enemies. Pray for those who are wicked against you. Return good for evil. All of that is counterculture craziness to the natural human mind. And yet David shows us this glorious shadow, foreshadow of the gospel. These men didn't go with us, but they are part of us. And we're going to share the same grace with them that God shared with us. Because that's the bottom line, folks. The reason we can show grace to others who don't deserve grace is because we have been shown grace who do not deserve grace. And, and that's what David knew. He knew that none of those rascals, including himself, deserved God's deliverance in this battle. And... and to be given everything back. And he realized fully that all this was God's doing and not his, and not any of them, it was God's. And since God freely gave to them, they must freely give to others who don't really deserve it. What a glorious picture. Ralph Davis puts it like this. Every Christian then has no choice. You must be a good theologian who both speaks and lives a theology of grace. You will find it humbling, but it is the only thing that will keep you from worshiping yourself. Grace. Look at verse 26 and 31. We see here that not only was David gracious, but he was wise. It was wise. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth, of, Negev, of the Negev, uh, in, in Jeter, and Aror, in Sifmoth, in Eshtemoa, in Rachel, and Rechal, in the cities of the Jeremelites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Horma, in Borshan, in Athak, in Hebron, Kentucky, for, <laughs> for all the, that's the only one I recognize, for all, now look at this, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. This is, this is just in one sense, right? David is from Judah. He, he represents, he will soon be the king of these people. And yet, also, he is returning gifts to those who have been robbed. Some of these maybe by him when he was doing those, those, those things uh, for the Philistines. But yet, the, the truth is, he realizes that they've all been robbed by other bands of, of people. And he says, hey, we're going to share what God has given us with all 
of the people of Israel, but also it's not just that. We can go ahead and say it, it's smart. You know, sometimes Christians think that just because we live by grace that we check our brains at the door and we don't think things through either. That's not what God tells us to do either. Be harmless as doves, but wise as serpent, right? And that's what David's doing here. He's, he knows he's going to be king one day, but what better way to kind of to grease the tracks to that than to make up, in a sense, with all of these leaders of all these cities and give them gifts and say, yeah, here, I want to give this to you guys and show you that I will be a good king. And that's okay. Jesus tells us to make friends with mammon, that we should make friends with those who have worldly treasures so that we'd accomplish the work of God. He said, my people... They fail for a lack of understanding of how to actually be wise sometimes and use the things that I have. Because folks, let's realize it. It's all God's money. I got a story for you. This must be inspired because it just came. That doesn't always mean that. I'm just kidding. But I do remember the old days of Latonia, Kentucky. There were two churches. One was the one that I mentioned a few weeks ago that started Calvary Christian School, and it was Calvary Baptist Church, where the great Warren Wearsby pastored for, for some time, years and years ago. But um, I, I, that church started years and years before from the Latonia Baptist Church. Now, what happened, it, it started from a split. That, that's pretty common. That's how, that's how Baptists do church planning. They split. <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> So what happened was, way back there, there was a debate about horse racing. Hmm. And some of the members of Latonia Baptist must have bet on horses or owned horses. or I think they owned a horse, and it, they, made, they couldn't bet because that's not scriptural. But they could own the horse and make the profit that way. Anyway, something like that was going on. Well, a big disruption a- a- occurred, and all the horse racers left Latonia Baptist and started Calvary Baptist Church. And one of the comments was about this idea of, of receiving any type of funds from the process of horse racing coming into the church. One of the leaders of the church said, you know, we will gladly receive those funds. The devil's had it long enough. It's time to use it for the kingdom of God. Amen. I mean, this is, this is the point. So the idea is, though, I, I know I joke with that a little bit. But on the other hand, God is sovereign over all things. He, uh, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the Bible says, right? Therefore, he owns the gold and the ore mines inside those hills. He owns it all. God has the rights to everything. And so we trust him. We can pray to him. We can think and say, Lord, we want to trust you. Now, obviously, we're not going to make any deals like, and I was, again, closely crossing a line there. We're not going to support things that are, that are illegal or that are truly uh, wicked and, 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 and so forth. But we do need to be more open to how do we serve God and what processes can we use to actually build his kingdom with what he has allowed us and, and, and given us in, in this world. And it may not even be at some times if a non-believer wants to give money just to say, hey, I, I like what you guys are doing. I want to give you a donation. I've heard some churches say, are you a Christian? No, we're not taking that money. Then move aside. I will. Thank you. And we will do the word of God. That's kind of what I'm saying, okay? In that sense, we need to be open to what God is doing apart from these things. And that's kind of what David did there. Now, enough of that. Let me get the quick application. I hate when you guys distract me. (laughs) But look at this application that we see in this. I want to go back to verse 6. The key of all of this is verse 6. But David 
strengthened himself in his God. That's the key. What do we do when it all goes to pot? What do we do? What do we do? You have a choice. We can wallow in the pain and the self-pity and, and, and all the hurt, or we can choose to strengthen ourselves in our God. How do you do it? That sounds good. How do you do it? How do you strengthen yourself in the Lord? Three things very quickly. First, we begin with a personal God. Sounds obvious, but we have to begin there. If we're going to strengthen ourselves in God, he has to be a personal God to us. We have to know him. And that's what David said, right? It says David strengthened himself in his God. David knew this. David didn't just call Jesus the shepherd of Israel. That was a common term for the Israelites to refer to Yahweh, the shepherd of Israel. That's a nice, grandiose title, very general. But in Psalm 23, David said, the Lord is my shepherd. My shepherd. Yahweh, a covenant God, my God, my shepherd. Galatians 2.20, Paul hits on this when 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 he says, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Oh, there's another broad term, the Son of God. But he goes on, who loved me and gave himself for me. He's my God. <laughs> I mean, David could no longer say, as, 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 as Alexander McLaren once said, David could no longer say, my house, my city, my possessions, my wife, my children. He couldn't say any of that for a time. But he could say, my God. And this is the point, folks. There is a time when we're not going to be able to say, oh, this is mine, and that's mine, and it's all okay. But the only thing we can always say, no matter what the circumstances, is that's my God. My God is my God. He is. So in his sovereign love, listen to this, listen to this. In his sovereign love for us, God brings us to a place where our hands are emptied of everything we once held dear so that they cling only to him. Do you see this? This is the theology of suffering. This is how it works. This is what we must think. This again is that worldview, the way we view things happening to us. From what lens, a philosophical lens, a psychological lens, a humanistic lens, or a biblical worldview lens? In his sovereign love for us, God brings us to a place where our hands are emptied of everything we once held dear. So that they cling only to him. And that's what we have to understand about that God who is personal and loves us. Secondly... How do we strengthen ourselves in the Lord? We remind ourselves of God's promises to us and the truth of his character. We remind ourselves who God is and what he has said. This is what happened in 1 Samuel 23 with Jonathan and David. Remember that? One of those, uh, another time where it all went to pot? <laughs> Just one of many, many, many times for David in this book of 1 Samuel. And what happens in verse 16 is in the midst of David being on the run from Saul and afraid that everything has fallen apart. And Jonathan said, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God 
So again, I love that. He didn't give him a bunch of advice from just his own experiences or anything else. He took him right to God. He strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, how did he do it? He said to him, do not fear. For the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king of Israel. What was Jonathan doing? He was quoting the promise God had already made to David. He's reminding David of what God had already promised him. And this is how we strengthen ourselves in the Lord, by reminding ourselves of who God is, his character, his, his, his immutability. His, it's impossible for him to change. He's the same. And what he says will come to pass. So we rest in that as truth, and we remind ourselves of those promises. I want to just share a story of, of a Scottish pastor, Andrew Bernard. He was a pastor in Scotland. And in his diary, there's an entry for October 15th, 1864. And it speaks of his grievous wound. And that grievous wound was, wound was Illabella, his wife of 17 years that had just died giving birth to their child. And he wrote that day of her death, he wrote, according to my custom or his custom, he'd been meditating on a scripture text that morning. And the text was Nahum chapter one, verse seven, which says, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But our ads, little did I think how I would need that verse a half hour later. But this is, this is a, an example for all of us, folks. This is it. This is how we strengthen ourselves in the Lord. We immerse ourselves in his words. We immerse ourselves in his words. His words are the promises to us. This is just an example. Why do Christians seem to fall apart when crisis strikes us? Evidently, we've not been paying attention to our master when he tells us over and over, number one, crisis is coming. It's coming over and over again. We see it in scripture, so we know it's coming. Number two, he's my refuge. That's got to be ingrained in us already by, by, by reading his word, meditating on that word, knowing the promise that God says, I am a stronghold in the day of trouble. And also, what else was ingrained in, in, in this man's life before he faced the crisis? The character of God. The Lord is good. He was meditating on it. He had that in his heart. He knew that whatever's happening, the first thing I need to understand and remind myself and take deep breaths and, and keep telling myself, God is good. The Lord is good in all of his ways, the Bible says. That's how we strengthen ourselves in the Lord. I mean, when everything goes to pot in our life, when the bottom drops out and everything you thought you had wrapped up nice and tight, and when all that's gone, you have a choice. You can continue to wallow in self-pity or you can strengthen yourself in the promises of God's word. That, that's it. That's what we're seeing here. Psalm 145, 17. David knew this. He said, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. David, who we just saw going through all of this stuff over the past, however long we've been in 1 Samuel now, continues to say, despite the pain, the loss, the heartache, 
the fear, the loneliness. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Paul said this, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Again, a problem that we have as believers living in this little world is that we look more to this temporary life for our answers than we do the unseen eternal realm of our Father. And what Paul's reminding us is it's a choice. We don't lose heart because we remind ourselves that though the outer self is fading away, suffering racked in pain with either disease, suffering uh, 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 some kind of a, of a diagnosis, cancer, whatever, whether you've been betrayed or hurt or lied about. It's momentary affliction. It's a momentary affliction. That's what we remind ourselves as people of God. Here's the point. Here's here's what Paul said. If we believe in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most miserable, most to be pitied. But we don't believe in Jesus just for this life. We don't believe in Jesus just so he'll make this life good. We know that this life will not be good all the time. But we do know that Christ died to save us for a new kingdom, an everlasting kingdom that will never fade away. And this is what Paul is reminding us. And centuries and centuries of Christians have continued to march forward through the pain, through the arrows, through the attacks, because they didn't look to this temporary world for their happiness and their fulfillment. They were looking to that which is unseen and yet surely grounded within us by the word of God and the Holy Spirit. And it is just as real and more real than anything this world has to offer to the believer. And then we, if we have that mindset, we can remind ourselves that these are momentary afflictions. They're preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So there's where we have to go, folks. We have to go to the Word of God. We have to have the Word of God in us. And we have to re- keep repeating to ourselves, this is who God is. And this is what God has promised me. And this is what's going to happen. So the liar can be silenced because the truth has spoken. That's, that's where Christians live. And that's how we encourage ourselves in the Lord. But number three, we use our access to his presence. We take advantage of our access to his very presence. First Samuel 30, verse 7 and 8 reminded us that David said, what did David do? He said, I'm going to strengthen myself in the Lord. What does that entail? Besides reminding myself of what God has already promised me that he will do and who he is, I'm going to seek him. Verse 7 and 8, that's what he did. And David said to Abathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abathar brought the ephod, and David inquired of the Lord. Now, we don't have the ephod, and we don't have the priestly system. That was all a foreshadow of the perfect priest who did come, Jesus Christ. That's our high priest that we do have. And that's why Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 is so important. Here it is. 
Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. You say you're a believer. You say you've trusted Christ. You say you rest in his death, burial, and resurrection. Then hold fast. Hold fast. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. So this is what we do. This is how we strengthen ourselves in the Lord Lord when things go bad. We fall upon our face and we plead to God, give us strength, give us help, give us rescue. And we do it over and over and over and over. Why? That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need is what it closes with. That's where we find our help in time of need. So I know we want to get all kind of excited about how do we, you know, build ourselves up in the Lord and our self-help programs. And if we do this, 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 and this, and check this, 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 and consult all this. No, it is very simple. Again, I know this sounds trite, but here it is. The way a Christian lives for the glory of God, the way a Christian strengthens himself in the Lord when all things go bad is the way it's always been. We immerse ourselves in his holy word and we pray. We are a people of the book and prayer. That's what we are. That's what we do. May we, by God's grace, be a people who in all around us, falls and is destroyed we strengthen ourselves in our god let's pray father we thank you for your word we thank you for your wisdom we thank you for your provision your patience and father we thank you for this word to us today give us the humility to fall before you and to beg you to strengthen us to admit that we need you Give us the assurance to know that you are our God who loves us with an everlasting love and that all your ways are good. And give us the faith to keep trusting you through the pain and suffering. And we say all of this, Father, not so we can have it easy in this life, but so that in this life we will bring you glory and that we will rejoice with you in the life to come for all eternity. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.